Good evening. Welcome to Washington. I'm Shannon Bremen for Brett Baer. Breaking tonight, a suspect is in custody in connection to a series of murders along a Long Island Beach more than a decade ago. He's a Manhattan architect who is allegedly implicated in potentially up to 10 killings. Correspondent Lauren Green starts us off tonight from New York. Hello, Lauren. Hey, Shannon. Well, you know, the case has been an unsolved mystery for years. A string of deaths known as the Gilgo Beach Murders, named for the sandy shores of Long Island, where several bodies were found. Today, police finally identified a suspect. Rex Sherman is a demon that walks among us. A predator that ruined families. And if not for the members of this task force, he would still be on the streets today. 59-year-old Rex Hureman is married and has two children. He was cuffed and surrounded by police as he headed to court where he pleaded not guilty to six counts of murder. The only thing I can tell you that he did say uh, as he was in tears was, I didn't do this. He was arrested Thursday night, not far from his architectural design office on Manhattan's Fifth Avenue. And early this morning, a swarm of police vehicles surrounded his home in Massapequa Park on Long Island, not far from where the bodies were found. Law enforcement searching for evidence and towing away cars. The charges are connected to the killings of three women, and Hurman is the prime suspect in a fourth murder, but he could be linked to as many as 10 killings. The investigation began in 2010 with the search for missing 23-year-old Shannon Gilbert. Police discovered the bodies of four other women hidden along a remote beach highway. 24-year-old Melissa Bartholomew, 25-year-old Maureen Brainerd Barnes, 22-year-old Megan Waterman, and 27-year-old Amber Lynn Costello, now known as the Gilgo Four, all reportedly working as Craigslist escorts. Court documents show Hirman has been on investigators' radar for months. In January, they found DNA on pizza crust that connected him to the murders. Documents also show he used burner phones to contact sex partners and conducted online searches related to sex and prostitution, as well as, quote, violent, sadistic child pornography. Hiraman is in custody held without bail, and a bail hearing is scheduled for August 1st. If convicted, he could face multiple life sentences, and investigators say more charges could be filed. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. And I'm joined by a very special guest who I've wanted to talk to for some time. Kerry, please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Kerry Rawson. I'm um, the daughter of Dennis Rader, otherwise known as the BTK serial killer. And you're an author, and you're an advocate, a survivor. <laughs> you do incredible things speaking out, which takes huge courage and bravery to do so. Yeah, I'm all those things and I forget. Somebody asked the other day, they're like, what is your title? And I was like, what are you like, Mrs.? Like, I like, they're like, no, like you're an author and an advocate. And I'm like, oh, right. Because mainly, so in the media, you always just see me as like BTK's daughter, not Carrie Rawson. Like, I don't even know if there's a headline out there that says Carrie Rawson. And not, like, I'm a New York Times bestselling author. So it's a little frustrating, but that's the media for you. So, <laughs> yes, and that's why I wanted to correct that narrative because every time I see it, I cringe for you. I mean, you're a mum as well. You are a kitty mum. You know, there's a lot more to you than just being defined by 
your father's acts and by his terrible acts to people. And and I think that part's important. And I am really anti-monikers, you know, these monikers that are given to perpetrators or in your father's case, he gave himself the moniker. And I've learned from a lot of families from working with them, they say things like, please don't use these monikers because A, it makes the perpetrator even bigger, you know, in terms of their standing and what they've done. But it it means that they get memorialized, but it also for the victims' families, they then know what was done to their loved one, their sister or their son or their brother, and therefore they find it very, very triggering. And I think it's this whole thing actually, Kerry, about true crime where perpetrators are memorialized. And like with Rex Hewerman, who I wanted to talk to you about as well, with the Gilgo Beach case, you know, there is this rush to and clamour to talk about the perpetrator, to talk about the person that's been arrested and to talk about the victims in a really terrible way of, you know, as if they don't matter. And people are clamouring for information about the perpetrator. And that goes on with a lot of cases. And very quickly when they learn he's married, the question is, well, she must have known. And well, it's not even a question, it's a statement. She must have known and he's got children. They must have known. And there's a very quick move to the lens to sort of blame her. And that's what I talked about on my YouTube about the case against Rex Hewerman, about once it was discovered that he was married. Being married, it can be this cloak of credibility and respectability. And people are shocked when someone's married, but very quickly, well, what did she know? And what did she say? And how did she behave? And I know you've lived this. So I wanted you to give your sort of reaction and your perspective to that, having lived through it yourself. To go back to like the acronym, it's really difficult because it's what the media does. And I don't know how to change that. I I find myself doing it too. But as you saw, I introduced myself as the daughter of Dennis Rader, otherwise known. So if I'm writing like on a tweet or something, I try, I have to do both because otherwise somebody doesn't know. For a while, even in my Twitter profile, I had the joke of like, yes, I'm his kid or yes, I'm BTK's kid. I didn't even used to be able to say BTK out loud. I had to do that in trauma therapy first in like 2007. And then I would like whisper it. And I don't think I even said it on camera, probably till 2018 was my reality. I don't like it, but it's just how he's known. And so unfortunately, I'm forever tied into that. Somebody emailed me the other day and they were like, if your life was so great before he was arrested, what's the big deal? Like, they're like, what happened and what changed? They're like, you're just riding his coattails. Wow. So that got like an instant block, right? Like that could have been published as like me sharing about a troll. But most of the time, 95% of the time, I just file it because there's no point really, right? But I wasn't aware serial killers had coattails, There's like a whole two-day discussion there about like what I've overcome and what kind of work I do. You're never going to win. Like there's always going to be people that are, they think I'm chasing the media because of my father. And I'm like, the media comes to me and I choose if I want to like do this or not. And I'm doing it to like speak up for families like mine, like Rex Hewerman's family. Because there was nobody speaking up for my family. And I'm literally getting emails with people thanking me for speaking up. Right. So I'm being told like I'm making a difference. And you see people saying now that when these things happen, they think about does he have a family and what must they be going through? Because they think of me and they tell me that they're like, well, we've heard you talk about it. 
So what I'm doing partly is I'm normalizing things. I'm humanizing things. Like I don't like them calling somebody like my dad or Rex a monster because they did monstrous things, but they look very normal. That's why we're not catching them. So people come to me for my perspective because it's rare. And then hardly anybody like me speaks up. You can't win. Like if I stayed quiet, some people would be glad, but then it's not helping anything and it's not solving anything and it's not adding any knowledge. So I'm just going to keep talking. (laughs) And I hope you do. You know, there's no reason why you shouldn't. You're educating people and you and your mom and your family, you did nothing wrong. So it is important that people understand that you shouldn't be villainized in this. And the same with Rex Heuermann's wife and children, that they shouldn't be defined by his actions. And their response can be picked apart, which is going on in the media right now. But one of the key things with perpetrators like your father and Rex Heuermann is their ability to manipulate. And it's not always easy for the families living with them to see. It's not easy for professionals to see. And like you said, they hide in plain sight and they Mm -hmm. don't have two heads. And that's important, you know, but the moniker side for me, it does create this illusion of who the person is as well. It makes them bigger than. And unfortunately, with the true crime world, there is this rush to talk about who your favorite serial killer is and these things that are just so unpalatable. And I think why your perspective is so important is because it does humanize and men who are abusive and violent to people in outside the family home can be also controlling to their own family members. And it doesn't always look like abuse. So I think, you know, people have in their heads what abuse and and serial killers look like. And when they're very normal looking, like your father and like Rex Heuermann, you know, 59 married professional men who have, you know, two children, they tick that very normal kind of set of boxes. And therefore people say, I'm really shocked But it could be a way of also insulating them so that people overlook them intentionally. It's a way to look very normal when all the time, and I know, you know, your father's case and the same with Rex Heuermann, having looked at the 32-page bail application, they spend a lot of time in their fantasy world. They spend a lot of time watching and stalking and researching. And all that stuff's not always visible to people, how much time they're spending doing it. And, you know, I just think it's wrong for the women and the children to be stigmatized and and almost blamed at times for the perpetrator's actions. And I I do see that a lot in my work where that blame, I know that Rex Heuermann's wife said something like, it is what it is. We don't know the context of what she said that, but she's just grounded in reality and people are already saying, well, how clinical and how disrespectful and how when we don't know the context of her saying that, but there's always this move to blame women in particular, the wife, or why didn't she know that this was happening? And, you know, I just want to say for me, it's all about the perpetrator and what they do and how devious they can be. Yeah. So, I mean, I have even seen people say like, well, she shouldn't, she should stand by her man, right? She shouldn't be getting a divorce. And I'm like, are you insane? Like she has the right to get a divorce. She has the right to stand by him. Why, why does your opinion matter here? And why do you even need to voice it? 
you know, like you don't have any idea what is going on in these people's lives, anybody's life. I mean, you just see everybody nowadays just very quick to have an opinion on everything. And if your opinion is not the same, they are going to call you out. I'm literally at the point on Twitter, I will say to somebody, really, it doesn't matter who, do not bring that on my timeline again. I'm setting a boundary because as a trauma survivor, as an abuse survivor, boundary work's been huge for me. And so I'm learning to set my boundaries with saying, no, no, you are not allowed to come verbally abuse me in my space. I didn't ask you to come over here and do this. So for my family, we were verbally and emotionally abused for decades physical abuse towards my brother, other deeper levels of abuse that will, you know, eventually be told. Coercive control, I'm seeing that be a big term and I would be interested in hearing your take on that because that's a new word for me and it's hard for me to say coercive. And so sometimes I don't get it right when I'm on camera, but it's a deeper level of just if someone being like, it's a level of like psychopathic narcissistic control, but it it has like deep roots to it of multi-levels of it's almost like multi-levels of chaos and really deep control and like with my father you don't know who's coming home at night I was scared of the man in the van in the work ADT van in the white van because when I was little sometimes my dad would come home and other times somebody else would come home and the person that came home now I'm realizing is like BTK right and so like I basically have PTSD from when I was born because like I was living like this, you know, for the last 45 years of just being tight and like scared and then waiting for that man to yell at you, you know, waiting for that house to erupt. Now I've been waiting for the FBI knock. Well, it's interesting. You say coercive control, Kerry, and with almost every case that I've worked where there is serial perpetration and serial killers, they are coercively controlling in their everyday life. And that coercive control is about utter domination of ensuring that they have and retain the power and control within the family domain. And like what you described, the Jekyll and Hyde, never quite knowing who it is, but ultimately being fearful of your reaction of how you behave because then they will behave in a certain way and always second guessing, walking on eggshells, verbal abuse, making you feel less than, making you feel really terrible, not just about yourself, but about your relationships and growing up in that environment. It can be very traumatic and it's the psychological can be and I know this from many survivors and from my own experience, the psychological and emotional abuse, those bruises aren't visible. They Mm. are the worst thing that many survivors tell me. It's not the broken bones or the bruises. It's the psychological terror and, you know, traumatization that happens. And it's at the hands of one person. And particularly if you have, you know, someone who's very patriarchal, they believe that the man's word goes and what they say, they are the king in their kingdom, i.e. in their home. And they have rules and regulations how everyone should live. And the rules and regulations aren't written down anywhere. They're just things that as you grow up, you know that you have to do certain things and behave in a certain way. And with some serial killers, there's certain rooms you're not allowed to go into or you have to do certain things a certain way. And if you don't, there's a consequence. I can see you nodding now and that fear of consequence. Yes, I'm nodding to every, well, everything you said, that's literally my life. 
and I'm back in trauma therapy. I'm in with a CCTP right now, a clinical certified trauma professional that works with first responders and law enforcement and hospital staff. He's at that level because that's what I need. And I sought out somebody to that level because I'm done with talk therapy. I'm done with talk therapy. Like, tell me about your dad. No, I'm done with it. Like I literally last one, I walked my book in and I said, if I've got homework, this is your homework. Right. And so I sought out somebody to the level that could tackle the PTSD and hit me with EMDR. And so I researched what I needed because I'm done dinking around (laughs) with old ways and we're working on the nervous system and reprogramming it because he he's teaching me all about subconscious and our um, autonomic nervous system and slumping and anxiety and depression, things I deal with. And then being at peace, one foot grounded, right? And I have a lot of tools in my toolbox with the PTSD, but we're tackling like that center. And people have even said in the last few months, they've seen a change in me. And I'm like, yeah, that's because I'm in therapy. And also I'm just dealing with like all this crazy stuff and I'm integrating, right? I'm integrating all of this stuff that I'm learning and processing and, and I'm becoming like a whole person. So when you're talking about all those things going on in your house with the coercive control and the multi-layers of abuse it's like on this side of it in hindsight you know there were all these things wrong with me in college I was falling apart I was depressed suicidal ideation bad grades I was like an exceptional student and then I fell apart this was before he was arrested and there's reasons for it now when you look back but I literally was having to parent myself my whole life really and when you're talking about that nervous system it, it was like on alert alert, 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 bad guy, bad guy. But if you go back when I was having night terrors, which I still have, like from when I was say four years old or something, I was reporting there was a bad guy in my house with the night terrors to my mom over and over and over. There's a bad guy in my house. And so I knew innately for a lot of reasons, I just wasn't able to like put that together. And I, she just kept saying, there's nobody, there's no bad guy in your house. And I wouldn't even go I wouldn't even get out of bed to go to the bathroom. I was so scared, right? So when you're talking about all of that, it's like these shards of glass that have been shot in you and you can hear, I can hear my dad mocking me and making me feel terrible about how I look or how I feel or I I fuck something up, right? I can still hear him. I can still feel him in here. And it's like this piece of glass and you have to go now, go chase all that down, get all of those out of you. And then that's how you survive because- If you don't, you just rot inside. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy. And health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto, Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey chili and zucchini, and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule, You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. 
Now they've done the maths and Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormills, F-A-C-T-O-R, factormills.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. Let's talk makeup for a moment. What's your daily makeup routine? Are you an out of the door with a messy bun, a mascara vibe? Or are you coiffed to the max? Or maybe you're somewhere in between like me. Thrive Cosmetics beauty products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty free. Made with clean skin loving ingredients, high performance and trademark formulas and uncompromising standards. Thrive Cosmetics bigger than beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are emerging from homelessness. It's a beauty brand and a philosophy that goes beyond skin deep by empowering women. Did you know the first product they launched were false eyelashes, which was motivated by the fact that cancer patients lose their eyelashes? How amazing is that? I love their new sheer strength lip plumping peptide gloss. It gives you a visibly fuller looking, luscious lips without fillers or uncomfortable stinging sensations. It's also ultra hydrating and there are 10 shades to choose from which enhance your natural lips, six shines and four shimmers. Support and empower women and treat yourself or a loved one. Thrive Cosmetics is a luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 20% off your first order. I'm nodding away because everything, you know, I'm so sorry you experienced that, but everything that you say is valid about the devaluing, the belittling, and that little voice becomes the voice that takes over in your head of when you're hearing that on repeat and feeling like you're worthless. Well, that's what a coercive controller does. And at times when they praise you, you really want that moment to continue, but it is just a fleeting, it's a positive negative reinforcement all the time. It's like a reward and punishment system. And for you, you're never sure where you're going to be with this person whose needs you always have to meet and your needs aren't important. And I knew you know, to some degree that there was coercive control with your father, even though various agents had said to me, no, there's no history of domestic abuse in the family. And oh, that was something, shit. well, that's very interesting <laughs> that's us having this conversation oh, now. Such bullshit. This is, oh God. I mean, we're we're talking about levels of abuse that aren't public. Like, you, there was one conversation with the FBI and me. There was one conversation with law enforcement with my mom. My mom was bruised all the time, right? She said she was klutzy. We don't know. Well, that's a clear tell. Like her arms were bruised. The man, the man bonded and tortured women. Was he holding her down in bed? I don't think he battered her. I don't think he beat her up. He wasn't a batterer. He didn't like blood. He didn't like it when we he was we were hurt, me and mom. He'd freak all out like it was our fault, like we had interrupted his day. There's all these stories about that. 
of like yelling at us when we were hurt while well, he was freaked out because we were bloody and he doesn't like blood. He had one case where he stabbed her and he got all messed up about it and he doesn't like blood. He likes women all nice and neat. And he would yell at me because I would have scars because I was a tomboy. And he's like, no one's ever going to want you. I was a little girl. No one's ever going to want you because you have scars. That was the reality of my father. And so when you're talking about not being notified, they literally like we had one conversation with them and with the pastor of like, are you sure you're not sexually and physically abused? And the problem is with these domestic ongoing massive decades cases of these families, we are very protective of our own image. Right. And so I was brought up to be like straight A's. The lawn was manicured. You wore the nice dresses to church. You were very prim and you were proper. You were respectable. You were responsible. Right. Your house looked beautiful. Now, Rex's house is a mess. That's a whole nother story. There's other reasons for that. But inside my house and all the closets, there was a ton of mess. And that's where dad hid everything. And then you're not allowed in those spots. Right. And so you're expected to be rigid everywhere you're at. And my brother was physically abused twice as a young adult. He was strangled by my dad in front of me and my mom. I was 18. My brother was 21. We never told anybody. We never talked to anybody about it. And we were very close to our families. My dad worked down the hall from the police. Okay. We weren't talking about how do you not know? The police didn't know. He had their, he had his binders. He had, he had them out after work at six o'clock. Six o'clock, he was off work, right? So he's anal retentive. He will work till six o'clock on that dot because he doesn't want to gyp somebody his hours he owes them. Then he'll do BTK stuff and be late for dinner that my mom would kept on the stove. That was that reality. Like I wasn't even alive for seven of the murders, right? But the police didn't know. It's so messed up. It is. I mean, in terms of what you experienced, and I have to say it doesn't surprise me, but in terms of you saying about his controls that he had in place as well, and I mean that in terms of the rules of what you're not allowed to do, but also him being in local law enforcement and in the church and on boards, but also his role as um, Park City Animal Control Officer and Code Enforcer. You know, for a coercive controller, that is the prime job, to go round controlling everyone's behavior and telling them what to do and having the opportunity to collect intelligence and information on people, but legitimately. And of course, there were complaints by women about his behavior and some of the, there was a lawsuit that was hidden, but his behavior would leak out in ways that now I train law enforcement to look for that behavior. Because like you said, families don't naturally open up and say, this is everything that's happening, particularly if that perpetrator is within law enforcement or, you know, adjunct to law enforcement or has some kind of way of silencing you with coercive control, you're not going to feel that you can speak out. But I think it was it was interesting for me to hear agents say categorically there was no abuse. And what often people think about is physical. And I always think about having changed there the law. Was physical. And as you said, there was physical. If you had been asked about it, maybe you would have said, but the coercive well, control is important yeah. as well for people to ask about, particularly now in 2023. Right. I had disassociated. So I had disassociated from my own levels of abuse that we're not going to get into right now. I'll come back later when we're more ready to talk about that. Um, and I had disassociated from some other um, abuse that wasn't at the my hands of my father when I was in high school. And I literally didn't even remember these things, right? These things that had happened. 
And so then when my father, I didn't, I had even disassociated from my brother being strangled. I, it was like, I didn't even remember. It's just this, this, this really traumatic thing that just gets embedded somewhere in your brain and you're protecting yourself. Right. And so when he was arrested, then I told my husband at that time when I was married, like, like about my brother being strangled and things and these other things started to come out and my, you know, we had been together several years and he had no idea. Right. And so the thing is with law enforcement, if you're only going to talk to somebody and notify them of the most on the most worst day of their life, and you're going to spend two hours with them. And then it's basically the FBI is like, see you later. See you never. That literally was my relationship with the FBI. And I was so freaking pissed at the FBI and the law enforcement for many years because it was they we had no victim services we had no support nobody ever came back and talked to us i literally was breaking my dad's codes that were public and i found things in him a month after he was arrested that nobody else had and nobody ever bothered to talk to me they're just now starting to listen to me in the last 6 months i'm just now getting people to listen to me it's so freaking frustrating they maybe need to go back and redo their timeline and profile on my dad because maybe they don't have it right because like you're saying, we're missing people like Rex, right? He's so similar to my dad. Like, how are you missing somebody that other people are saying is an org? Like <laughs> with a Chevy Avalanche, the car was hardly ever made. I don't yeah, get it. I agree. It's so frustrating. And, you know, I can only apologize from, though I wasn't in the FBI at the time, but I did spend time at the FBI and work with some incredible people. But just you being your life being upended and then no support from victim services which you know you are victims and survivors in your own right as as you say and it's really important that you do receive the right sort of care and questions are asked you can play a key role in looking at the timeline and understanding behavior by the way i created a risk assessment model called the dash the domestic abuse and stalking and harassment on a base violence risk model in the uk for law enforcement to ask victims what's going on but they need training on it right so it's not just anybody should be picking it up it's trauma informed and there's training to ask the right questions because if we do ask the right questions of the right people we would be catching more men like rex hewerman and Dennis Rader far earlier on, and I've spent my life's work trying to identify and create risk models from patterned behavior. And you play a, a key role in that, Kerry. Everything you shared with me today is such important information for other people to think about how he was controlling you all and manipulating you all. And you said your mother had bruises on her. And given your father's level of fantasy and sadism and binding, I would expect that to play out at home. But why should someone just tell you, if you're in law enforcement, all these things that are happening when you are terrified and fearful? You have to build the rapport and relationships and you have to have trust and confidence, right? Yeah, you have to. That's what I was going to say. You have to build that relationship and it takes time. And I understand law enforcement doesn't always have that time, but it's it's so vitally important. And why are we now just having these conversations two decades later? And if anybody even went and read my book, my book is required reading in some criminology colleges, like in their courses. Maybe the FBI needs to go read my book and then go have a chat with me. It's always been like, man, I wish I could just get to Quantico and knock some heads together. But the reality is there's just so much active going on when you're talking to these agencies. It's very hard for them to go deal with missing and cold cases because 
dealing with all the active fires right now. I, I understand that reality. But the problem too is most people aren't open books and honest like me. They haven't done the work. So if you're talking to like my mom or something, she she will still deny things that we know are true. I'm like catching my father, like John Douglas, okay? He told us that John Douglas, this massive guy, he told us that I my dad John. was... Yeah. Yeah, my dad was caught twice in um, bondage and lingerie by my mom in the house. And I had always said BS. And I asked my mom years ago and she said BS. But now based on what I understand, it was completely true. And so if you have a reporter, a victim hiding things, right? And we're running into this with missing person cases. And so we're over here as advocates trying to solve missing person cases. And when you're talking about sex workers or drugs, any sort of risky type behaviors, we're running into issues where families are not reporting honestly to us who their family member is. And then it makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to find them. We're literally trying to problem solve that as advocates right now. How do we get people to trust us to be open and honest so that we can find their loved ones because we don't care? We don't care what their lifestyle is. We got to know the lifestyle to find them, right? But it's rare for somebody like me to be open and to talk. Yes, it is. And I really appreciate and value you for being so honest and candid. And I think we also have to remember that when you've lived with the coercive controller and a psychopath, it's their voice that's in your head, as, as we discussed, and that can stop you. You become self-policing because you have been living your life through their lens so it's actually really hard to trust someone that you don't know with this secret, you know, and your biggest fear. Why should you just instantly connect? As you know, Kerry, it takes time. And so I always know there are tells for me with people who are keeping secrets and, and withholding, but that comes with experience. And that's why training is so important. Trauma-informed training and using risk models and specialist services to ask the most difficult questions. And, you know, that does, I, I certainly don't blame any victim for not feeling that they can share their story or what's happening to them. It does take time to to open up, sometimes years, for you to realise your own experience and what happened to you, particularly when you've been gaslit, you know, by a coercive controller and someone who's very manipulative. And, you know, I believe with Rex Heuerman, well, yes, why did it take 12 years to form the task force? Why weren't the basic lines of investigation done? I have real questions about that with Amber Costello's case. You know, this guy was a huge guy who stood out, who multiple women have said that they had really scary encounters with. And with the car, the witness, there was a description. It was very local. There are questions to be asked about, you know, why did it take so long for intervention and prevention purposes to learn those lessons? And most of the perpetrators aren't, you know, the cleverest of perpetrators, it's that somebody hasn't really done their job. I would say, do your damn job, but asking the right questions. <laughs> and, you know, what does dangerousness look like? Does it look like the guy who's the vice president or president of the church who works locally in law enforcement, who is the Park City animal control officer and code enforcer, who's married with two children, who's 59? And um, most people don't think that's what dangerousness looks like, but their families know like you, what dangerousness and, and risk looks like because you lived it. You have to separate the family from the danger, right? And then the family has to feel safe. And so when you're being notified of the worst things possible, 
like you are going to go into very protective mode and you're going to protect this person, right? And so if the only interview the FBI has is on some yellow paper that nobody can find now and then wasn't recorded, like, of course, they're going to think I only thought he was a family man because you're not talking to me now. It's required this this many years to do trauma therapy and and shake those things out. I'm literally sh- still shaking things out when he snapped a belt at me, when he, a belt, the same belt that he possibly used to strangle Nancy Fox and then wore that belt, right? That's the reality of my life. And those little pieces are still shaking out. I mean, I, I now I can put together that he stole Mr. Otero's watch when he murdered him. And then he wore it to the next crime scene. And the sur- one survivor, the one person that has survived BTK, there's only one person that we know of that has survived the full BTK, right? There's levels of it. That person reported a silver watch, right? But in hindsight, now you can put those things together. He stole Joey Otero's radio. We had the radio at our house, I believe. Right. When my dad brought all this odd stuff home and had it like propped up near his bed because it meant stuff to him. All of that. There's so much, so much there that hasn't even really been investigated with my own father. And then we're not applying it to somebody like Rex. It's ridiculous. It's so frustrating. I'm so frustrated. I will just keep speaking and doing what I'm doing and healing and be me. And they can all just deal (laughs) or not at this point. I'm coming. (laughs) I'm coming. So... Well, it's so important what you're saying. And yes, taking souvenirs and things for you across your life course that didn't seem relevant at the time, you're always going to be looking in the rear view mirror and now something, ah, that's what that means. And that's what that means. And, you know, you're such an important piece in this, Kerry, pulling it all together, but also for learning for the future. You know, there's cases looking behind of what else your father may have done, because we know particularly those who are sexual sadists and those who are stalkers and those who are psychopaths, they are very prolific in their behavior. And even though we might think there's a hiatus where they stop, they rarely stop looking and stalking and trolling. You know, that's what I believe yeah. your father was doing. I believe Rex Hewerman was the same. And we can learn a lot from listening to you and listening to your family members, but timelining cases in the right way. And we must learn the lesson. So I really value what you have to say. Please keep speaking out. I know this is the start of us having many conversations and I will try and support you in any way that I can because I think it's right in your search for answers for you as well that you can piece this together. And, you know, I'll say to my listeners and those who watch this, please do go and buy Kerry's book. Do you want to say what your your book's called and where they can buy it? Yeah, you can buy it anywhere, Amazon, any store. It's A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Faith, Love, and Overcoming. And then I'm working on a second one that's based on trauma called Breaking Free, Overcoming the Trauma of a Serial Killer Father. And that's going to be primarily based on PTSD and motherhood and marriage and what trauma does to a family and dealing with the media. And I'm halfway done with that. I'm quite overdue with that one. And so it'll come out eventually. Well, you've had a lot on your plate, but surviving it and unlearning some of the things from the past, you know, we should, and we do spend our adult life unlearning those things. And for you, you've had a lot in terms of the legacy. That's why I feel these selfish, entitled men, they have this need-driven behavior that's all about them and their needs being met, but it's the legacy that they leave behind. You are a real person. You're not just defined by the worst acts that he did. You are your own person with your own, with your children and you have a lot to teach 
other people. And I know you're learning a lot yourself. So I just want to thank you for speaking out. I know we will be hearing much more about Rex Heuermann. I know your father wrote a letter just today and we were going to speak earlier, but he wrote a letter centering himself in the case saying we're just alike 59 year old men who were professional married with children um you know we're very similar individuals who hid in plain sight basically so that's what a psychopath does he likes to center himself in the center of everything that's going on and it's a reminder you know for him of what he's done and maybe he thinks he's trying to be helpful in some way but for law enforcement we should be learning those lessons and thinking about how do we identify men like this serial killers far earlier on because there are a lot of patterns and there are a lot of signs so thank you very much Kerry for helping shine light on some of them and particularly what was going on within your life and the family life at the time I, I really appreciate you sharing that um, I appreciate talking to you and learning, you know, I'm learning from you as we're going along here and learning new terms like coercive control. You know, one one last thought just briefly about my dad and the letter. I have a way of seeing my father as a human and first as a human and person I still love. I love my dad. You know, I hate what he did. I don't know BTK. I've gotten pretty close to it recently. It's not a pleasant place to be. It's not where you want to be. Right. But if you think about somebody like my dad or Rex, it's got to be a very lonely place, right? How many sexual sadistic people are there that are hiding these in mass things that drive them and then they end up murdering out of it? It's a very messed up place that probably comes from abuse as a kid. That's at least where we think with my dad. We don't really know for sure what went wrong. But if you wouldn't think of it, if somebody is being very lonely, like he's sending a letter to the media because maybe he really wants to connect with Rex, right? Like he's seeing, seeing himself in this person and, oh, he's my age and we both got caught by DNA and electronics. You know, it feels familiar to my dad. He's like, oh, there, well, there's another one that got caught. You know, like to me, it's that it's more like almost a buddy thing than like a narcissistic thing. Well, there's various interpretations about that, you know, and one interpretation could be that psychopaths, you know, when they see each other, they like to one-up each other, but they also like to enjoy each other's fantasies and what's been done and relive things in that way. And, you know, to answer your question about psychopathy, I think it is very interesting when you go back and you do a psychological autopsy of psychopaths' lives there is most oftentimes domestic abuse, yes, and coercive control and serious levels of abuse. But we know now that there's a psychopath gene and it gets expressed when there is abuse that they are subjected to. And, you know, it is very much need-driven behaviour for a desire to control, to have power and control over. So we're we're still learning but, a lot but more. Like, I, like when you're talking about the genes, like... I have his jeans and my kids have his jeans. And so I don't even have a parking ticket. You know, I'm okay. Like, let's just stick all of us in some lab and let's study all of us and figure it out. Like, I'm good with that. Like the ethics, I don't know if anybody ever would, but maybe somebody needs to start like taking the blood of all the serial killer kids. Well, Dr. James Fallon out. is doing that work, funnily enough. And, you know, yes, not everybody has that gene, Kerry. So just because you are related, it's most often passed on from the mother to the the son. 
you know, and that's why we have more male psychopaths. So, but it is something, I mean, if you're interested in it, if you watch Dr. James Fallon's TED Talk, he's done a 10 minute TED Talk, which is phenomenal because not only does he study psychopaths, he was doing a blind test on his own family and he came across a psychopath gene in those tests and he took the decision to unblind, i.e. to see whose brain it was. And it was his. So his first, yeah, and he tells this very interesting story about it because at first he just kept thinking the machine's broken. It must be broken. And he kept running the tests and then he realized it was accurate. And then he spoke to his mother and said, wow, I've just discovered this. And the mum said, I'm amazed you've only just realized. And anyway, the way he tells the story, he's a colleague of mine, but the way he tells the story is really interesting. He has never offended. He got involved with a lot of sort of reckless behavior as a boy, but his parents Mm -hmm. just shrouded him with love, took up all his time with extra school activities. So he had no time to do anything too delinquent, shall we say. But he admits himself he has to self-police all the time. And his wife would say the same about him. You know, there are things like, you know, lacking empathy. And, you know, it really is a very interesting TED talk because previously up to his work, we thought that it was much more, yes, it's nature and nurture, but how much does the genes, how much do the genes and the uh, physiology play a role? And I know certainly a lot of the cases I've worked, many psychopath cases and serial killer cases, when I track their histories back to childhood, they were abused. And I don't say that, it's not about excusing it. As you know, it's about understanding it and understanding ourselves and how we do the work on ourselves. That even though James Fallon is a psychopath, he puts a lot of good into the world, you know, and that's what he has spent his whole life and career doing. So I think it is an, an interesting, you know, study that, that he has done. I'm sure you, I can see your brain whirring a million miles an hour thinking about it all now. Well, with the psychopathy, it's a protection mechanism, too. I mean, I think when you're it could be something that's triggered, like some, you know, they talk about trauma being passed on now, alcoholism, certain things that can be triggered in certain environments. And so if you're combining certain genes with, say, sexual abuse, we we do believe my father was sexually abused when he was little. There's been hints at it. We're seeing it in some of his writings, either like a distant family member, somebody in their small community or even maybe somebody in the family not my immediate grandparents, but Lord, I, I, everything's off the table really at this point. So I don't even know, but if you're talking about that, then you can see where it can become a matter of protection of protecting you really to me, a psychopath isn't that they don't have any feelings. It's all feeling and it's not regulated. It's dysregulation and it's all stuck inside. And then it's pain passed on. And so when we're talking about somebody having no feeling, really, my dad is all feeling and it's all like this. And then it comes out as murder. But then it gets all tied up because it's like all twisty, like they get turned on by murder, right? Like that's all weird, but it's like all messed up from when they're little. When you're talking about somebody like me, being okay, not being a criminal, um, you're talking about resiliency, right? So we're, we're like, for some reason, I'm very resilient. Like somebody needs to pick my brain. Is there a resiliency gene? But when you're talking about genetics, yes, something does run through my dad to my his mother's line. I am absolutely 100% sure that's the line that it runs through. But then he has three brothers and they're they're okay. So again, what, where's that components we don't know. 
we're working yeah. on. I mean, often with abuse and when you have somebody who views sex and equates pain with pleasure, where aggression is pleasure, that's often something that's happened early on in their childhood. And therefore, as you say, everything's become confused. But the wanting power over, you know, that element of needing to dominate, dominate or be dominated, often also, I can see you nodding, runs through their way of thinking. They have to be the top dog. They have to be the one in control, often because they weren't when they were younger. So there is a lot to unpack. Every case has its own idiosyncrasies for sure. But there are some patterns that that we see with cases. You know, when I was thinking real quick about the letter, you're talking about, so a psychopath, they're hunters, right? So when you have a hunting grounds, we're looking right now at my father's hunting grounds and we're looking at Rex's and we're trying to expand, right? Like we're looking several areas for Rex and now we're looking at areas for my father. We're calling them hunting grounds. If you have two hunters and they're out hunting, they don't necessarily interact, right? They just pass each other and nod. And it's sort of like my dad is sending a letter nodding to him saying, I see you and I appreciate your work and what you're doing. And I, like you said, I'm enjoying it over here and I'm enjoying the thought of your work and I'm enjoying that maybe you were influenced by my work, but we both see psychopaths. They can see right into your internal soul. And my dad knew right away if somebody was bad or no good. And he knew how to protect us hard from them, right? Because he knew how bad somebody could be. And he know he can see through right through everybody's soul. And unfortunately, he knows where the weakness is and he knows right where to hit it. And so when he's seeing another psychopath, now I'm not sure, I think he can tell somebody's a psychopath, but I don't think he can see in them necessarily. But it's sort of just like this, this almost colleague level of criminality, not of, hey, 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 you over there, you got caught too. It's just a, a nod and a wave is really what my father's doing. And I believe that. I believe it is a way to communicate to him. And and you are exactly right. You explain about your father. The psychopath has the ability to absolutely understand the emotional temperature of people. They can just read straight through it. And that's why they're very good at being able to manipulate other people because they understand their needs and their weaknesses very quickly. In the blink of an eye, they can do this. And that's what people don't really understand. And they're very good at dressing things up as something else. They can be very plausible and charming when they choose to be. They can be that Mm. person. But woe betide you, if you don't play by their rules, they can be scorched the earth and there can be a very different side to the person. Like your father handing out all these citations for very petty things. I always remember at the FBI that the blades of grass, he always had this thing about <laughs> grass not being over six, six inches and he would fine people for that violation. And that told me immediately coercive control, these sorts of behaviours um, where they're getting a kickoff, you know, this regulation, but they're very adept at reading people, just as you say. And yes, I think that was a nod to to Rex Hewerman as well, a message. Unfortunately, when you can read somebody very well and look into them, you know exactly the target, the weakest spot, and you know how to hit it. You also know how to charm it. You also know how to make it feel better. You also know how to apologize to it without ever apologizing. You know, it's like being almost like a marionette on a puppet. And so when we're going back to where we started, to some degree, 
if you're only interviewed for a weekend or so and you're never come back to, you're not going to learn these developments and a depth of knowledge from somebody like me and these other families. And unfortunately, because of partly how we've been treated, not only by the media, but unfortunately by law enforcement, we, we don't talk. You know, we're all messed up. Like we should all be dead in a ditch somewhere. And the fact that we're not is amazing and then nobody ever talks to us. And so really one of the big key things I'm doing is talking because I have a friend, she says, we don't, we can't deal with what we don't know and we can't heal from what we don't talk about. So I'm working on opening up those conversations with the whole world really and saying, let's, let's face this and deal with it and heal from it. Asa says, Rex, his wife, it is what it is. So it is what it is. Let's just deal with it. <laughs> That's a grounded reality. And I'm happy to talk with you, to listen, to learn and to support you. So thank you so much, Kerry, for talking and please keep talking. Don't stop. I think there's some really important lessons here. I won't stop talking even if people get really annoyed with me. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you for your courage. And in whichever way I can support you, please let me know. So thank you. And to the rest of my listeners, as you've heard throughout this conversation, you know, asking questions is really important. Being curious, ask questions and always trust your instinct. Really important set of rules. They're the that's how I sign off on crime analysts, Kerry, and it really encapsulates this really important conversation. So until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.